This is the Irrelevant Information Podcast, a podcast about unimportant subjects. I'm Rodrigo Nunez, and today we're going to talk about 7-Eleven of Japan. July 11th is a really special day for me. That's because it's 7-Eleven Day. And on 7-Eleven Day, you can get a free Slurpee from 7-Eleven. And you better believe that on July 11th, I'm walking in there, dirtying my shoes, and grabbing a tiny cup with some carbonated cherry-flavored ice. The granddaddy of all convenience stores, 7-Elevens can be gross places with sticky floors like they usually are on 7-Eleven Day, or they can be community hubs where you can get anything from fresh sushi to ski lift passes to paying your bills to buying magazine subscriptions. If you don't believe me, it's because you've never been to a real 7-Eleven. That is to say, a 7-Eleven of Japan. Seven Eleven officially began in 1927 as the Southland Ice Company in Dallas, Texas. Originally selling only ice, one of the employees, a man by the name of John Jefferson Green, began selling eggs, milk, and bread from one of the stores. He did this because he thought customers would rather not travel long distances for basic items, and thus, the convenience store was born. In 1928, the Southland Ice Company stores changed their name to Totem Stores and would place an Alaskan totem pole in front of the store and were decorated in an Alaskan Native-inspired theme, which I'm sure wasn't at all problematic. I mean, this was 1920s Dallas, so I'm sure it was totally fine. <laughs> that was sarcasm. It wasn't all bad, though. In 1928, they also incorporated uniforms for their employees and started constructing gas stations for their stores, as well as implementing a training policy to ensure service was the same in every store. By 1937, there were 60 ice houses slash convenience stores, and the totem stores were expanding all throughout Texas. In 1946, the chain changed its name from totem stores to 7-Eleven. That's because they had new extended hours. They were open from 7 a.m. to 11 p.m. There's a famous story of a store in Austin which stayed open all night to satisfy customer demand, and it became a 24-hour store, the first 24-hour store, but soon other stores in Fort Worth and Dallas became 24 hours after that. But originally, they were open from 7 to 11, which is crazy at the time, and it's still crazy now, but not as crazy as 24 hours, which a lot of them still are. In the 60s and 70s, 7-Eleven, or Southland, started buying other, out other companies. In 1971, they, they acquired Pakasak, which is a convenience store chain from Louisiana. But the real big move was in 1964 when they purchased 126 Speedy Mart stores, uh, which were franchised in California. And with that move, they officially entered the franchising business, which would have huge implications later on. 7-Eleven was growing and thriving and innovating with products like Slurpees. They were selling coffee. They had big gulps, big bites. And then the 1980s happened. The Southland Corporation was a target of a corporate takeover, kind of like Succession, the, the HBO show. But the Thompson family, the original founding family, wanted to prevent this. And in 1987, orchestrated a $5.2 billion management buyout of the company. The buyout occurred in the midst of the 1987 stock market crash, however, and the Thompsons went deeply in debt. The company had to sell off a bunch of assets 
to stay afloat. They sold their auto parts chain off, their ice division, which remember, Southland was originally an ice company, so that must have hurt the family, and hundreds of their store locations. In fact, cities in the U.S. were left without 7-Elevens after this move. The Thompsons family failed move to privatize 7-Eleven resulted in Southland Corporation filing for bankruptcy in 1991. That should have been the end of 7-Eleven, but thankfully, it franchised. In 1973, Ito Yokado Company Limited established a licensing agreement and area service contract with the Southland Corporation. The first 7-Eleven of Japan opened its doors the following year in Tokyo's Koto Ward on May 1974. Two years later, there were 100 stores in Japan. Right away, the 7-Elevens of Japan were different. They sold items that we don't think of a convenience store selling and did so in a unique way. They also focused on the distribution systems heavily. For example, they would sell sushi and cooked food at the stores that was delivered in refrigerated packaging multiple times a day, not just once a week or whatever they do in the United States. They also tracked customer demand in a way that the American stores didn't. In the words of a 1991 article about 7-Eleven of Japan in the New York Times, they, quote, developed an almost fanatical devotion to keeping up with consumer taste, which means frequent new product experiments and consistently crisp service, end quote. 7-Eleven of Japan also had a great point of sale system that was way ahead of anything in the United States. This POS system's gave stores hands-on controls over inventory, product ordering, and deliveries. Japanese stores were smaller than American stores, but sold more and carried about a third of the inventory. This is due to their development of a just-in-time delivery approach paired with their point-of-sale system that would track the pattern of sales by the time and age and sex of the buyers. Again, this type of tracking isn't so outrageous now, but you have to remember that this was the 80s, right? And like we didn't even have the internet back then and they were doing this and these POS systems were communicating with headquarters and all of that. It was really innovative stuff. All of these factors contributed to their ridiculous growth. By 1980, six years after the first one opened, there were 1,000 stores in Japan. The next year, they were listed on the Tokyo Stock Exchange. In 1984, only four years after 1,000 stores, there were 2,000 stores. In 1987, there were 3,000 stores, and in 1988, they introduced a control system to keep cooked rice items at 20 degrees Celsius from the factories to the delivery trucks to display cases in stores. The temperature never changed, and that is awesome. By 1991, 7-Eleven of Japan had more than 4,000 stores in Japan, and they were thriving, which is exactly when the Southland Corporation was about to go under, until... Ito Yokata and 7-Eleven of Japan infused $430 million and took a 70% controlling stake of the company, and they kept growing. 7-Eleven of Japan, in the coming years, would keep opening stores while also offering innovations like having chilled open cases, allowing the payment of utility bills in stores, selling ski lift passes, 
Uh, they allowed for payment of mailed ordered purchase. They would sell video games. They had photocopiers available for customers. They started selling music CDs. They started selling magazine and newspaper subscriptions. They started selling ebooks in 7-Eleven stores. They established an e-commerce company. They established a meal delivery service. They established a bank. They introduced original fast food without additives or artificial coloring or artificial flavors. They opened the first 7-Eleven in China and reached a total number of 10,000 stores before finally in 2005, they swallowed its original parent company and 7-Eleven of Japan became the parent company of the now renamed 7-Eleven Inc. or formerly the Southland Corporation. Seven Eleven of Japan then became Seven and I Holdings, and officially became the parent company of Seven Eleven. Think about that! What a wild ride! There's no question about it. Seven Eleven of Japan did things right. Japan has more Seven Eleven locations than anywhere else in the world. They sometimes aren't called Seven Eleven; they're called Seven and I Holdings, which is the name of the parent company. But of the sixty-seven thousand four hundred and eighty stores around the globe, twenty thousand seven hundred, or about thirty-one percent of the stores, are in Japan. In Tokyo alone, there's two thousand seven hundred stores, and up until this year, they had stores in all the prefectures of Japan except for Okinawa, but one just opened up in June of this year. And like I mentioned before, they do so much more than just sell Slurpees and have sticky floors. You'll find so many articles or videos on YouTube of tourists, usually Americans, going over to Japan and trying out a Japanese 7-Eleven and being amazed at how things are run and what they can find in there. The American stores, on the other hand, don't quite have that image, but honestly, they're not without its charm. For example, 7-Eleven Day. Still, 7-Eleven Holdings is trying to change that, but it's not going so well. And that's due to what saved them in the first place or what saved their subsidiary, which was their parent in the first place. They're trying to restructure contracts of their franchisees to match those in Japan and allow them to spend more on business-wide improvement. But that cuts into the short-term profits of the people running the franchises. So they're battling with franchise holders, which they themselves were at one point. It'll be an uphill battle, but the story of 7-Eleven of Japan swallowing the inventor of 7-Eleven is so fascinating to me, and it's something that is super Japanese to me. They take an idea, a simple idea, and work and work and work and refine it and work until it's perfected. Think of the car. The Japanese didn't invent the car, but they sure make the best affordable cars, and they have a reputation for being long-lasting and the best and cheap and everything. Or think about Japanese televisions or Japanese video games. There's a great podcast by Dan Carlin called Hardcore History, where he goes into these long four-hour episodes about history and the wars and whatever. But he's talking in one episode about the Japanese, and he says this about them: "Quote: The Japanese are like any other people, only more so." End quote. And I think that applies to so many aspects of Japanese culture, and also to Seven Eleven of Japan. Seven Eleven of Japan is just like Seven Eleven, only more so. And I think there's two lessons that I take away from the story of 7-Eleven of Japan. The first is, if you don't value your work and your original ideas, someone else will. Southland didn't invest as much into their innovations and into their systems as 7-Eleven of Japan did, and they ended up losing it. But the second is that even if the idea isn't yours, if you work hard enough and innovate and care for it more than the original, 
you can be in a position to supplant and become the original. It's kind of like what I said at the beginning. Maybe you don't think 7-Eleven stores are that cool, but really, we haven't really been in a real one unless we've been in one for Japan because they took over it and now they're the 7-Eleven. for this week's episode thanks again for listening um i hope you enjoyed this i think it's a really fascinating story uh, please feel free to reach out to us on instagram leave us a review on itunes follow us on spotify share with your friends um, i edited this episode on a new digital audio workstation so let me know if you heard anything weird or if it sounds cool or different or anything that's why as always or4 did nothing wrong <laughs>